This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. 6am Wednesday, the 3rd of August. And of course, you're listening to The Morning Run. In front of me, wearing a very nice white shirt. Today is Philip C. Very bright, your shirt, Philip. It's like in my eyes. And of course, I'm Wong Shaoning. <laughs> I hope I'm not blinding you. This is in contrast to my pretty ugly blue batik shirt yesterday. Yes, today you look dapper. I can't believe you called my batik shirt yesterday ugly. Well, it wasn't the nicest. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, it's a good way, uh, this white shirt, because it brings a bit of light into the studio on a rather yes. wet and gloomy Wednesday morning. And we were just talking about the different types of fish we would eat in this cold <laughs> weather, didn't we? Yeah, we just a second of, ago, before Mike's went on. Before Mike's went because on, right? We are, fish. Because we are such greedy people on the morning we run. Yeah, and we are always talking about food, where to go, <laughs> what to eat. So I'm going to be a little bit different today and ask you, right? You can tweet in at BFM Radio. You can WhatsApp in 018789 899 with some of your food tips so that we as a team can go food hunting over the weekend. That hot pot in Kairak, on Kairak Highway with those steamed prawns. I'm just dreaming about that now. Yeah, okay. So Philip's given one suggestion. Everyone chip in, let us know what you think. But as usual, um, on this Wednesday morning, we have an interesting uh, lineup of stories. First off, we're going to have a temperature check on the property market and maybe even tell you what to buy and where to buy. And that conversation is going to be with Chan Ai Ching. She's the president of the Malaysian Institute of Estate Agents. And, in, and at 7.30, will commodity prices come down with the ships allowed to leave the Ukrainian port of Odessa? Priyanka Kishore, head of India and Southeast Asia Economics at Oxford Economics, tries to unpack the implications in terms of short-term and long-term commodity prices. Yeah, and then at 7.45... We're going to ask the question whether you're a friend of the country. Literally. That's a literal translation, by the way. Uh, because the whole ministry is trying to encourage exactly that. With James Chai, we're going to have the conversation with James Chai, visiting fellow at ISIS Yusuf Ishak Institute. Shouting everyone in BFM is a friend of the country, isn't it? As long as you're a citizen, you're a friend of the country. For sure. But what Why does do we this, need to distinguish that? Uh, but what does this mean? So do tune in because it does sound rather mysterious, right? All this and more on the morning run. Stay tuned for that. BFM 89.9. And that was Laughing with the Mouth of Blood by St. Vincent and a little less conversation <laughs> by Elvis Presley. I was trying to find a connection. Anyway, you're listening to The Morning Run with, with Philip C. and Wong Shaning. We definitely it, want to encourage more conversation, not less conversation. I'm not sure about the mouth of blood. Anyway, it's 6.08. <laughs> it's Wednesday, the 3rd of August. And I think I, I want to make a disclaimer. We don't choose the songs, right? Uh, you and I don't anyway. Well, I do like most of the songs, I have to admit. Uh, yeah, most of them. Most of them. These, this one was a bit of an exception, but generally <laughs> across the board, they, they sit in my like column. <laughs> column, is it? Okay, um, talking about something that's liked by a lot of corporates, a lot of governments, uh, is ESG, right? That's a really big trend. Is that the right word to, to use? Trend in the last Fad. few years? Fad. 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 I think it should be more than a fad. Uh, don't get us wrong. It's something that we should endeavour to move towards, ESG practices. And this is an article actually on the Wall Street Journal. It's an opinion piece, by the way. Mm. So I have to say, I didn't necessarily agree with it. Uh, it's entitled, ESG fees inflation hurts economic growth. And the point is because as we move towards it, we are unnecessarily allocating resources to the wrong thing. In a nutshell, right? Mm. That's what the article says. Mm. Well, what is wrong, I guess, is the question. And wrong in the eyes of who? Because the function of ESG intention was to shift away from the mindset of being pure shareholder specific 
to being more stakeholder specific. Yeah. So when you are a shareholder, it's very clear you're single minded. It's return on investment for yeah. the shareholder. You return capital to the investor. But when you start talking about the stakeholders and you extend that horizon beyond just the investor to other constituents of, you know, the the play, which is your employees, you know, the society and communities you live in, the government, the country, the country you live in naturally, then you don't optimize necessarily for return on investment. I think that's one of the biggest challenges that we have. And so I think the experience I've had with respect to ESG is that people always think that it doesn't bear any additional cost to the business. The reality is it does because it has to, because you're shifting the goalpost from being pure ROI to taking a broader mandate. Yeah, but um, okay, so let's let's agree on a few things. I think it is necessary to move towards uh, ESG practices. I don't see any negative from mm. it. Uh, the, the intention of it, the spirit of it is definitely positive, right? So just to remind everybody, ESG here stands for environmental, social and governance. Um, and I, the the point about this opinion piece is that it diverts corporate attention away from this long-term profitability and in turn depresses output and raises prices. So you're right, Philip. Here we move from shareholder-only mindset to stakeholder mindset. Yeah. And in this, who are the stakeholders? It's just basically everyone and anyone, right? Mm. Because as a as a corporate, there are consequences in terms of whatever you do to the wider society, to the country, to your employees, to let's say anyone involved in the supply chain of your operations, uh, to your contractors, for example. So how do you go about making this transition in the least painful way? And I think that's always the challenge, right? I want to build on the point you said, which I think was so prescient about short-term and long-term. Many proponents of ESG will argue that, yes, there will be short-term pain. You will have to make these investments which are expensive, which may cost money in the short-term, affecting short-term returns, but it will pay off in the long-term. So I think that's the question. But in my mind, what drives long-term profitability? Is mm. it the fact that your demand need, your demand will shift, so you have to repivot in order to meet that demand? Is the regular regulatory environment going to shift substantially as a result of that place or is the environment going to change so much that you have no choice but to pivot right yeah because maybe the business that you're in eventually can't be done right yes because business as usual cannot run on the same margins in the future so that's the argument i think many are saying look it is about also delivering long-term return of investment. Yeah. So I, I recently read this PwC report, right, on ESG practices. And, it, mm. you know, this is, of course, a US-based report. And as many as 90% of your customers want companies which actually have good ESG. Okay. So if yeah. you don't shift, your customers in the longer term might walk away, might actually eventually say... I don't want to do business with you, you know, because your practices don't agree with me. Absolutely right. I mean, you see the demand shift. You're also seeing partners and vendors and even banks also apply different margins uh, if they are if they are ESG compliant as well. For sure, because they also have stakeholders that demand ESG from them. So recently, I did a I did a breakfast grill with Jodis. Jodis being one of the largest logistic companies in Europe. Of course, I only had the conversation with the uh, ASEAN head. But when I look through the annual report of their parent, which is the French train company, SNCF, I hope I got that right. The pressure on Geodis actually comes from the end client who says, if you don't use electric vehicles for your last mile delivery, we will shift our contracts to another another vendor. Same same case with Microsoft trying to do data centers here and asking for what's the source of your energy. Yeah, so at the end of the day, I think everybody needs to pivot. 
it, because it's definitely a demand out there. Uh, but we're going to be back with some messages. Um, keep it here, BFM 89.9. Don't look back in anger by Oasis, which is kind of ironic because Liam and Noel Gallagher aren't known for their gentle ways. But anyway, it is <laughs> 6.19, Wednesday, the 3rd of August. And the song is also really apt because... The next article we are looking at, chosen by our intern Bernard, is yes. why people lash out at service workers and it's from the BBC. So don't only look back in anger, also don't talk at service staff in anger because what's happened in the UK is that they've reported that more than half of customer-facing employees report increased incidences of abuse since the start of the pandemic. And I'm not surprised with this statistic. You're not? I'm not, I'm not. Because if you think about us, right, as, as human beings, we have been locked in for so long. We've had so little social and human interaction. You've forgotten how to, is You've it? You've forgotten the basic decency of how to communicate well. We've been so enraptured with our devices that perhaps the only human interactions we had are with service staff. Think about it, right? With family, everything is through WhatsApp, with friends, everything is through digital, work is digital. So really the only physical encounters perhaps that many people have on a day-to-day basis is with the front line. Okay, I'm going to be the devil's advocate and ask, when is it justified to be angry with... Never. Okay, never, never, like raise your voice, never, even if like they're, they're you know, really frustrating you to, 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 the, to the end. Well, of the I think world. you have to hit a couple of hurdles before you hit that stride, I think. Okay, so then how should you, let's say you go to a restaurant, right? Mm. And the food never comes, the waiters ignore you, they don't take your order. And even if they do, they mix it up. It comes 45 minutes later. Yeah. When you try to address it calmly, people just brush you off. And then they're just plain rude right so so in this case here right for the restaurant in particular I, I kind of have to look at it from multiple layers one is that you know we are in this situation where there's so much shortage of staff happening everywhere so I sometimes have to kind of uh, you know apportion some blame to the management perhaps as well as the frontline waiter and waitress who's also giving the bad service and slow response right so for me you have to ask a couple of times say what's the status where is it happening and then if it's really not good like hey this is not good can you please like expedite or hurry up but if he doesn't do that i would like can i speak to the manager or would you just leave I would leave and I might even even put a negative review and even give feedback to say that was not really good from that standpoint. Because I find like lashing out the anger always is a bit counterproductive. It doesn't really help the situation in solving the problem, you know, especially if someone is really in a stressed mode already. Yeah, that is that is very valid. And I think the other thing to remember, and according to this article, which is very useful, is to remind yourself, right, that at the end of this, at the you know, the other person on the other side of the conversation, even 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 if the person is incompetent, yeah, and there are cases where people are they wait are, staff sure. are incompetent, is another human being. Yes. Right. Yes. And this is the issue about the, in this article, they talk about this scapegoat theory where essentially like you've not seen anyone, you really are so annoyed and frustrated, you lash out at someone, right? You find that scapegoat per se. And especially with this whole logic that customers come first embedded in our mind. And since we've never had that principle, you know, reminded throughout the pandemic, I think we want to reinforce it <laughs> when we have these interactions uh, with frontliners and service staff that, hey, guy, remember, 
remember, customer always comes first. Mm. And I think that's what accentuates and makes this a problem everywhere. I see this happening everywhere, right? Bad service is then triggering a negative response to the customer. Yeah, but I also find, um, and I'm, I'm going to play the devil's advocate again, right? Uh, in Malaysia, are we used to poor service? Yes. Partially because I think we don't pay for it. Just to be honest, we don't yeah. necessarily pay for it. So kitchen, waiting staff, you know, uh, service staff usually paid very, very poorly, very, very badly. So there isn't this mindset of service versus, I won't say the US system is the best, but because tipping culture there is so prevalent, the staff there are on the ball to please customers because mm. it can make a difference between the, the, tip. the 10, 15, 20% tip, right, which is part of their culture. So they know that if I give service, good service, I will get rewarded for it. I will get a monetary incentive uh, at the end of the day. Yeah. But here, there isn't that kind of correlation, we don't connection. Take, yeah. So maybe staff think, it's not at my interest. Why do I care then? That's true. I hardly tip, you know, I'm sorry to say this. Okay, everyone knows I'm a tipper. <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah, I'm a tipper. Oh I'm, a, I'm a big believer in it. I tip okay. the Grab drivers. I just basically just tip everybody. Even digital, you, you do the tip No, I give well. cash. I'm the queen of cash. I always have $1, like plenty of $1, uh, $5 auntie. in my... No, no. When they see the money, they are happy. I, I agree with you because you never want to trust the, the bypass system. Yeah, right? yeah. And I, I want to make sure that the guy actually gets it like and mm, gets it immediately. So he knows, he knows I am happy with him and whatever service he rendered or she rendered is worth a value to me. So what's your take when restaurants put this policy where they, they centralize the tips because the tip has to be distributed not only to the front line but to yeah, the back end Yeah, there is a staff. system even in Are you US. cool with giving tips like that? I am because I think the back, the you know, the kitchen staff deserve yeah, it. So deserve to it me, too. If you want to create a culture of service, so back to this where you shouldn't be nasty to people, but I think also service staff should be rewarded for when they are doing a good job. Mm, so the true. whole system maybe needs a little bit of a rethink, right? And also we as human beings need to remind ourselves that there's another human being at the end of the, you know, your backlash. And apparently the, this is really cute. When you address the person, if you're not happy with the wait staff, look at his name tag. He has a name. He is a person. And once you look at that name tag, apparently, and you recognize that Andrew, Nancy, you know, uh, St- Sandy, they are another person. And then that brings that whole mood down, you so know, your true. anger. When you mention the name, it de-escalates the situation very fast. Exactly. So up next is the seven, sorry, 6.30 a.m. news. And to take us there, and this is important in our conversation, Breathe Deeply by Tame Impala. Keep it here, BFM 89.9. 6.40 in the morning, Wednesday, the 3rd of August. And of course, you're listening to The Morning Run with Philip C. Feeling very all right. And I'm Wong Xiaoning. Well, I'll tell you what's not all right. The current relationship between the China and US. Yes, it's, bu- yeah, it's bubbling it's, over. It's bubbling over. And there's a huge uh, controversy following the decision of Nancy Pelosi, the US House Speaker, to land in Taiwan. It was very interesting. You know, last night I was at Flight Radar observing the aircraft as it departed from KL, how it circumnavigated through Indonesia and avoided the South China Sea. And before I had to be- go to bed, it was just on the east- eastern tip of Philippines deciding, oh, should it turn left to Taiwan or go up north to South Korea slash Japan? And it's really riveting to the point where apparently flight radar even crashed because there were nearly 700,000 people monitoring the movement of this specific plane, whether it was going to veer into Taiwan. And you were one of the 750,000 One of those losers, yes. Yeah, yeah. What do you call these people that... uh, Avgeeks. (laughs) Avgeeks. That's what we call them. That's what you call yourself, Philip. That's what you call yourself. But every headline, right, whether it's Bloomberg 
Wall Street Journal, Financial Times is following this story very, very closely because it has, it has wider repercussions, one of which is markets because they're all in the red due to geo, geopolitical tensions. Look at Hang Seng and the Shanghai Composite Index. They're both down more than... 2.3%. People are nervous about this trip. They're and extremely I, nervous. The question that I was listening, uh, that kept on being repeated on Bloomberg this morning on, on their live radio was, what's the point of this visit? Is, does it really do anything good for the United States? Exactly. I think what was very interesting and, you know, contrasting to the call we had with Adrian Ang yesterday from RSIS, right? Um, Newt Gingrich, the previous House Speaker, came went to Taiwan about 25 years ago, but he coupled it with visits to China at the time. Mm. And at the time, also the relationship and the, the strength of China's position diplomatically was very different then. So she's very clearly a bashed, you know, a, a Democrat pushing for for her views about, you know, how important uh, democracy is. And so I think this is really going to stir up China's hardness, I think, in a really wrong way. And you can see the response and provocation response taking place already. Yes, because, um, you know, Bloomberg is reporting uh, that China is actually at the moment already like ratcheting up its military presence in the region, right? So I think that's going to be the case. So I I don't know, is is, is there any point? I mean, the argument is that there is some short-term gain for her domestically, right? Because they've seen as like, oh, US is still strong. We are superpower. But long term, for the benefit of America as a superpower, economic and also military, does it really serve any purpose? You're absolutely correct in the sense that this actually has huge support back domestically at home because it is a bipartisan issue where you get uh, both the Republicans and Democrats agreeing to this policy. Just to build on the point you say that it has geopolitical ramifications, what we saw was Russia has come out to say that they find that this action by US was provocative. And I I think it's an attempt to, I think, win China over. Because if we talk about the war in Russia and Ukraine, there's a lot of talk about Russia needing some of Chinese techno- military technology, mm. especially the drones, to support them in the war taking place with Ukraine. So you're right, you know, in terms of this visit has huge ramifications beyond the markets, that it also has huge ramifications about global dipl- diplomacy and even the war in Russia and Ukraine. Yeah, but then on the flip side, right, um, Nancy Pelosi will argue back that this is also a symbol of America's position in Taiwan, right? That they are steadfast, firm friends and that yeah. China shouldn't consider an invasion. So, you know, there's this kind of debate going on. Uh, but I think we'll be following the repercussions very, very closely as a result of this. Now, another story that's kind of taken uh, caught, caught my eye and it's not really relevant. It's not markets. It's, well, it's actually money. As you know, I love money, right? And this is uh, The Guardian, which highlighted um, that women's men's paintings cost 10 times more than women's. Really? Yes. Why? Uh, basically, somebody was very sexist and said men paint better than women. But, okay, so this is the shocker. So they gave some examples and it's really, really not the best example. So a painting by Leonardo da Vinci fetched 450 million US dollars while the world record, and that's the world record for a man artist, Mm, while mm. the world record for a female artist, Georgia O'Keeffe is just 44.4 million US dollars, a tenth of it. Okay, so maybe it's not the fair comparison, but we're talking about record ever price done. Yeah, so I'm I'm questioning whether the, the... 
element of gender is the distinction here, right? Between why a painting is paid more for men versus females. I think that's, for me, the question. Because the worry is, with respect to these articles, usually sometimes we put the gender element in and then, oh, it's an observation, but whether it's a cause, effect, I'm mm. not sure. That's the question in my mind. Well, there are other things that the, the Guardian, because it's actually based on a podcast, right? Um, not a podcast done by them, I think, but a podcast done by another individual. Uh, one of the things they point out is that, you know, women Women make up 70% of students in art college, which is selected on merit. And despite the, the art world being liberal and progressive, why is this still the widest, biggest pay gap that exists? In a way, yes, it is a pay gap, It right? is a pay gap. I guess the question then, broadly speaking, is in the creative world, are we seeing pay gaps between men and women? You know, we see that quite clear in the business world. It's very easy to, you know, kind of disclose and see those numbers. But when you start entering into the nebulous world about how you define creativity, how is that pay gap translating? For example, artists, music artists. Yeah, um, this it's it's a point worth considering. And by the way, the, the research is done by Helen Goriel. She's the author of Women Can't Paint. Uh, but let us know what you think. Does the pay gap exist in the art world fairly or unfairly? We'll be back after some messages. Keep it here, BFM 89.9. And that was Every Morning by Sugar Ray, which I hope you're listening to us. Every morning without fail. Weekdays only, please. We are we are all sleeping on Saturday and Sunday. It is 6.50 Wednesday, the 3rd of August. And of course, you're listening to The Morning Run. In front of me is Philip C. And I'm Wong Xiaoning. Now, at this time of the morning, we're always looking at all the interesting local stories that are in our newspapers and our portals. Philip has put his hands up. He's very excited. Go, Philip, go. I have to say the star really did a good one today. Um, they have two Two stories on the front page. The first on top was the power lunch when Nancy Pelosi did a second stop in uh, in her whirlwind Indo-Pacific tour. She was here for how many hours? For like, like a couple of hours, only eight like, hours. Right? I think they were, no, is it eight hours or even less? She arrived in the morning, left at about 3, 4 p.m. So I think five, six hours only. You know, we were joking among our colleagues that people have queued for longer and the immigration <laughs> at, at Heathrow. Heathrow yeah, yes. yeah, so she was here just slightly longer than that, right? Exactly. So the front page power lunch with the Prime Minister and our Speaker of the Parliament looking a bit interest looking a bit weird puzzled puzzled i think puzzled. The that's the right word yeah so i think that was the front page of the first first story second story which was very good good headline stalled not stubbed out i think that's with relation to the generational end game uh, bill the anti-smoking bill that's being touted by the health ministry now that has been referred to the parliament's select committee yeah so is that a back down by kj I suspect it is because he wanted it to be tabled and approved next week. So if it goes all within to, five days, right? All within five days. So if it's going to go to a parliamentary select committee, which he will chair, though, with thirteen MPs from both the government and opposition bloc, re- looking and reviewing the recommendations towards fine tuning the bill, it is a bit of a compromise. It is a bit of a delay. Now I think what we see is that many opposition members of parliament saying, "Look, it needs time to scrutinize," because they were contrasting it with New Zealand, where they basically say it was tabled around the same time Mm. but going through a parliamentary select committee in which they will make the decision in December so I think we are taking that similar path as well okay so some notable names in this uh, PSC in this parliamentary select committee I noticed Azalina of course MP for Pengerang there is Dr. Kelvin Yee uh, Banda Kuching uh, MP 
Sirawasa, he's the Sungai Bulo Pakatan Harapan MP. Dr. Zulkifi, Kuala Selangor Pakatan Harapan MP. Uh, Daryl Leking, he's uh, Warisan. Mukris Mahate from Pajuang. So quite a bit of a It is big, a high profile list yeah. of members of parliament there. Yes, of course, there's Muhammad Nizam, Parit BN. So I'm going to, and apparently Hannah Yeo said, and this is the interesting part, right? She's a Gambut uh, MP. Members of the se- Special Select Committee must declare the interest or any applications that may be involved because this is a multi-billion dollar industry. And I'm wondering whether she's alluding to the fact that there's a lot, a lot of lobbying going behind the scenes. Because there was, I saw some Twitter posts where people were saying that the, the tobacco companies were in parliament and what are they doing there? But this is a Twitter feed, so I'm not sure it's 100% Well, accurate. I mean, you're going to fundamentally change the industry. So they would, take whatever it takes to defend it. I mean, that's the the reality, right? Yeah. So we'll be watching this space very, very closely, but it looks like uh, this bill can't be passed within five days, can it? I don't think so, but I, I do think it's a step in the right direction that they're going to do a proper review and discussion and that, that, that actually you can have that opportunity to go through and dissect it in more detail. Yeah, I think it is important. Bills, I think we all agree the spirit of it is in a good place. We do want to see the end of uh, smoking because the consequences are great. Um, you know, there's no denying that there is a link to, to bad health outcomes. Uh, but the bill should be deliberated on and discussed very thoroughly. Now, other news, actually, I'm going to refer to our Singapore Straits Times because, you know, I love to turn to them. Uh, and there's an article about Malaysian chicken breeders want export ban lifted immediately because, okay, two because- days ago... I think a minister said, Sunny, we have... Oversupply. An oversupply. That's right. So, what's going on? So, we had the conversation with Ong Kian Mi and over the weekend that they were planning to lift the chicken price ban by end of this August, uh, review the the ceiling cap. Then we saw over uh, the two fast 48 hours say, look, the demand supply ratio has gone up to 106%, which means it's an oversupply. And I think this is the point, right, that if you want to build food security, you have to tie it to trade. You have to be able to create a vibrant industry here. And there's no way to do it if you don't inc- allow, if you restrict exports. Yeah, um, you do have to let markets find their own pricing, right? That's that's right. That's, that's a challenge. That's a challenge. And then government shouldn't be interfering in business too much. It should facilitate business. But of course, you know, it is it is difficult to achieve that kind of balance. But clearly when you... When you create ceiling prices, maybe this is a consequence. Uh, but up next, we've got the 7 a.m. news bulletin. And to take us there is Get Back by the Beatles. Keep it here, BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.